Hi, my name is Rosalind O, oh, and you are listening to True Heroes, the podcast that celebrates the ordinary people with extraordinary missions to make the world a better place one day at a time. This week, I sit down with Sarah Telahoon, a bona fide expert in urban sustainability. She's recently joined the Anthesis Group as their senior sustainability consultant, where she works with local authorities and city governments to map out their greenhouse gas emissions and develop strategies to reduce their climate impact. Her mission is to enable subnational governments to implement strategies that reduce their emissions all the same time while protecting their most vulnerable citizens from the devastating effects of climate change. And this one is probably my personal favorite interview to date because the conversation today is packed with stats, information, and really funny stories about the challenges facing our cities. And it's not just about carbon emissions and climate impact. We talk about everything from fuel poverty, moss based graffiti, how to balance and prioritize when there's so many urgent and terrible issues and we only have limited resources. And last but not least, how to inspire real lasting change in the face of a climate emergency. So I hope you enjoy the show. All right, I am so excited to invite Sarah Telahoon onto True Heroes today. Welcome. How are you doing, Sarah? Hi, Rosalind. I'm doing good, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to have a chat with you today. Oh, absolutely. Same here. I'm really, really excited. Oh, and I'm sure the listeners will be really, really um, inspired and interested in what you have to say because I know a little bit about you and I've kind of been like, you know, like pitter pattering and getting really excited for the interview because I wanted to speak to you really uh, quite badly. And before we get into um, anything, I first of all want to ask you to introduce yourself for the listeners. Sure. So my name is Sara Telahoon. I am based in Bristol. Um, I work mainly with local authorities and uh, city level governments around the world to help them to kind of measure and manage their uh, carbon emissions and kind of prepare for this current climate, climate emergency that we're currently finding ourselves in. So definitely really urgent work. Not only is it important, really urgent work you're doing there. Um, and of course, the the most important question of True Heroes is what is the main mission you want to achieve with your work? The main mission that I want to achieve with my work is really to enable local authorities and local governments to, with the tools and the knowledge and the understanding um, of their current situations and how they can help to kind of reduce their impact in quite a drastic way. Um, as we know, this kind of climate emergency situation that we're currently in is um, changing on a daily basis. So um, one of the things I'm quite keen on is giving the, the knowledge and the tools to those local authorities that are very stretched, very under-resourced and still wanting to implement change and really enabling them to do that. So that's hopefully I will achieve that in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, the first kind of um, curiosity that I have is why did you choose local authorities as your audience? Um, you did mention they were under-resourced. They have the intention, but don't always have the tools. Um, you know, how did you come across, how did you end up choosing this as the audience to work with? 
Well, I started um, my kind of early career and did a first degree and undergraduate degree in architecture. And that's actually how I kind of came into the sustainability area. I first started um, doing designs for buildings and kind of was interested in the sort of design aspect but then became more and more interested in that, in how we can make those buildings energy efficient, sustainable, and using sort of resources that were um, kind of returnable resources, reusable resources, and not having such a negative impact on the environment whilst creating those structures. And kind of from there, I realized that the buildings element didn't really interest me as much. And actually what I wanted mm-hmm. to do is have something that had a bigger impact on wider society and really helped um, to kind of create a sustainable future. So I sort of took the road down sustainability and um, and it kind of made sense to me to connect that kind of built environment work that I'd previously been done with um, and take it on to a bigger scale. And cities are really interesting in that they house over 50% of the world's population currently. And that's expected to boom in 2050 to about 70% of the world's population. So they're huge centers for um, innovation, huge economic centers as well. Um, which is a great opportunity, of course, because there's a lot of money that goes through. There's a lot of um, innovation and interesting projects that happen within cities. But at the same time, they are consuming more than 75% of the world's energy and obviously emitting over 70% of their the global CO2 emissions arising from cities. And as urban centers are going to be growing and growing in the future, this is really where it's kind of the make or break point for our um our global ecosystem, because, um, you know, there's, there's a huge opportunity where if we create sustainable cities and have a framework for a way that a city can grow, but grow sustainably, then maybe we have, you know, something really significant in our toolkit that we can use to help combat climate change. So that's kind of what really interested me and struck me from cities as being a real, um, potential opportunity and potential, um, game changer for our fight in climate change, which is why I kind of got interested in it. Mm-mm. That makes a lot of sense. And also sounds very strategic as well. You know, you're tackling where there is the greatest need and also where there is the greatest need, there's also the greatest potential for change and potential for impact. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And how has that journey been so far? Is it easy, difficult? I'm feeling easy is probably not the right adjective. Well, I think in terms of my personal journey and in terms of like how I got here, it's it's been a struggle because mm-hmm. um, there there weren't when I left university, there weren't a huge amount of jobs in the sector. There weren't really a huge amount of jobs anywhere. Actually, I left <laughs> university around the time of the global stock market crash. So coming to a, finding a job that anybody would pay you for was pretty much impossible. But then um, as time goes on, I mean, where we're currently standing is, you know, a lot of eyes and public attention is on the environmental sector and on climate change. And everyone is very aware of it. So in a way, it has helped in terms of public awareness. And in some ways, public awareness does also have a very direct correlation with political activism in sense of um we're seeing now, right now, local authorities really starting to um, listen to the public protests, for example, the Extinction Rebellion protests that are ha- happening currently. I was actually at an event where um, the Bath and Northeast Somerset Council um, representative spoke and she said that they had 
they were so concerned by the level of public unrest in terms of the climate action um, that was needed that they went back to their councillors and discussed with them and were able to come up with a plan that allowed them to change strategically the way in which they make decisions at the city level. So um, all the decisions that get made through the city governance structure have a certain process to follow and usually it's around things like you know um, ensuring that it's the it's a low cost process ensuring that there's no negative social um, um, impacts from it and they actually added in a point about the climate impact that that particular decision would have so they changed the, the decision making process they had in the city to make sure it incorporated um climate the climate concern so that whatever decisions were being made whether or not they were related specifically to environmental issues were being considered the you know the climate impacts were being considered around it so it's and that was you know a direct correlation between that activism and that um, social unrest to fundamentally changing the way in which a local authority makes its decisions which was pretty impressive I think yeah, you're right. That does sound incredibly hopeful because, um, and hope, being hopeful is a rarity, especially when it comes to things like climate emergency Definitely. and in this sector. Yeah, it's hard to be hopeful, but that does sound incredibly hopeful. Um, but of course, there's the decision to make decisions based on um, climate impact is one thing, um, but being able to make an informed decision and the ability and the capacity to make that informed decision is yet another thing, which is, I think, where probably um, your work comes in. And could you speak about um, this notion of mapping greenhouse gas emissions and how how cities are able to reduce their impact? Of course, given that um, if you could break it down for a complete lay person like me, a little bit about what you do, that'd be great. Sure. So in terms of the measurement aspect, so uh, one of the first steps that uh, a local authority can take in understanding and reducing their impact is to do an inventory. So similar to how you would um, move into a new house and you would take an inventory stock check of what was there, the cities can do the same thing across their city boundaries. So they'd first need to decide where is the limit of my city physically? What, what boundary am I using so I can know what's in scope and what's out of scope? And once they have this boundary, they need to look at the key um, sectors for emissions. So the biggest sector usually that generates most of cities' emissions is the energy sector, which is all-encompassing all the buildings within the city. So whether the, the local authority is owning those buildings or whether it's being owned by um, a business, it doesn't matter. Um, so all of those um, buildings that generate, uh, uh, that use electricity and use energy should all be considered under that. Then the second aspect is transport. Cities obviously are huge transport hubs. So everything that relates to road transport, um, trains, um, um motorcycles, vans, everything that comes under there would be considered within the transport element of the inventory. Um, then the one of the final main aspects would be the waste as well. So um, every time you throw away your household waste, it gets picked up by the city and it will either get treated within the city um, uh, in order to get rid of the waste or it might get exported outside of the city and treated outside of the city. So that aspect needs to be considered as well in terms of how much emissions um, are being uh, put into the atmosphere as a result of that burning of waste or recycling of waste. 
So those yeah. are the sort of main sectors that cities need to consider within their inventory and, and the, the, the mapping of that really comes down to kind of the measurement of each of those activities and understanding how much emissions has is emitted during one year period um, from each of those activities and, and calculating all of those. And how has the attitude of the local authorities been when working with this? Just because... Um, For example, I'm from Vancouver. um, And so when I was speaking to Vancouver's, uh, a city of Vancouver's waste management facilities, they, yeah, they were, Vancouver was trying to become a a zero waste city by 2020. Don't know if they're about to achieve it. (laughs) A big question mark there. Um, but, But that was a noble effort. And part of how they were scoping that was the fact that they were exporting a lot of waste outside of their city boundaries for treatment. And Mm. And, you know, there was a lot of ambiguities and it, and it honestly felt like to me at some at times, not all of the city council or the city government, but some people were moving blame versus actually taking responsibility. And has this been a struggle at all? Um, yeah. How has the attitude been? I definitely think it is a struggle and so much of emissions management relates to that question of what is in scope and what is not in scope. Mm. Um, Like your example with Vancouver is very true and especially in North America, a lot of the cities are exporting their waste to be treated elsewhere. Um, I think it was very recently when um, China was actually started to implement very strong regimented policies on importing waste from Mm -hmm. other countries um, because originally most of the U.S.'s waste was exported to China and and treated there. And um, and China suddenly... uh, Produce these higher regulations uh, for, in terms of the the level of cleanliness of the waste that they were importing, which did not meet the standards of what um, the U.S. was exporting. So now they're having a huge situation where um, uh, China's just refusing to import all of the the waste that it usually had, and the U.S.'s cities are suddenly thinking, well, well, what are we going to do with it now? We have to come mm-hmm. up with all of these measures. So um, it's really quite a struggle in that respect, and. Even so, going back to the question around boundaries, uh, even right now in our city in Bristol, what we're experiencing is another situation like this on the transport side, which is, um, as you know, Bristol's mayor has um, inco- has uh, agreed to um, let the airport expand and have a new runway at the airport at Bristol's airport, which is a fairly small airport. And um, but on the other hand, we also have this target of net zero emissions by 2030. It was actually brought forward originally; it was 2050, but now um, it was brought forward to be more ambitious to say wow. that we need to reach uh, net zero um, emissions, which means essentially reducing the amount of emissions in Bristol to a point where almost a 95% point where the remaining emissions that happen within the city would be offset or mm-hmm. sequestration would happen uh, uh, and and resulting in an overall net zero emission. So we have this very ambitious target. It also includes scope two and scope three, which is quite a wide scope. So so these are, let me break down that term, technical terminology. <laughs> by, by that, I'm meaning it, it includes everything from energy and electricity, but it also includes um all of the uh, the transport emissions and all of the the emissions which happen outside of the boundary, but as a result of activities within the boundary. So wow. it's it's a very wide scope in terms of the overall um, uh, um, area covered by the emissions, the net zero target. And yet, <laughs> Bristol's mayor has agreed to expand our our airport 
um, which in, in the end is probably going to increase our emissions. So mm. I, I do think there are um, a number of challenges that cities are facing because, you know, on the one hand, they do want to obviously um, commit to these ambitious targets. and They want to be seen to be doing more, but equally, they don't want that to make a negative impact on the city in terms of economic um economic activity, innovation and growth, they don't want to stifle those aspects. So it is really quite a tricky challenge for most of the cities. Oh, yeah. I mean, and just balancing all these competing demands, which many, if not all of those are actually quite valid all in their own right, because you're right, exactly right. We do want more innovation. Um, And I know that you also speak about how um, ensuring sustainable cities and balancing that with um, economic or social inclusiveness. And that's, you know, all these competing demands coming in from different people. And yet we still have an urgent issue at hand. But while we're, you know, charging towards this urgent um, issue of climate change and climate impact, we can't let these other things fall by the wayside. And of course, different audiences and different populations are going to have different issues at the front and center on their minds. And they're going to want to lobby for that. And oh my goodness, all this mess. How do you, (laughs) how do we balance everything? How do we, how do we get it right? Is there a right answer? I think there is a right answer for every individual case. I don't mm. think it's possible to take one one um, solution and uh, propose it against a number of different cities. One of the things I um, I really learned a lot by working at my previous organization, CDP, we worked with um, hundreds of cities around the world that were of such different scale. And uh, the scale, the economic um, behaviors, the political issues, everything is entirely different from one city to another. So there's no kind of one size fits all that would just suddenly fix the solution across any any city in the world. I think um, what I'm really um, looking forward to doing in my current role is, is kind of targeting um, a smaller number of cities and working very closely with them um, because each city has its own um, uh, issues and priorities within the city and that needs whatever solutions that we provide or suggest to them needs to be tailored for those. Otherwise, it's not going to be sustainable in the long term. Um, for example, taking Bristol as an example, it was uh, rated as the UK out of the core cities of the UK, which is about 13 cities um, in the UK, was listed as the most racially segregated core city in the UK. And it's, you know, it's one of the biggest priorities in in our current mayor's uh, term to kind of focus on that economic and social um, disparity that we're currently facing in the city. So we do need to have that as a priority when we consider what um, environmental solutions are going to help us reach our target. We cannot leave behind certain parts of the city or or certain uh, communities. We need to kind of make sure that each community is being represented in some way and that it's um, it's done in a sustainable manner. So things, for example, like fuel poverty are a really big issue in, in Bristol. And fuel poverty is where um, a household, uh, any household that spends more than 10% of its overall income on just s- paying its bills for fuel mm-hmm. and, and, you know, heating the house and paying for its hot water, more than 10% is considered to be um, a fuel poor household. So they cannot really sustain themselves um, properly. And they're probably spending too much of their money on just, you know, the energy that comes into their home. So 
Um, there are a number of organizations who work to um, give subsidies to um, households who have low income to allow them to energy to improve the energy efficiency of their houses so that they don't need to spend as much money on their bills. And that's a, that's an aspect which is obviously great uh, environmentally because it means they're going to be using less energy but mm -hmm. at the same time it has huge social benefit because it means that they can have a better quality of life and they're not um you know coming to the end of their paycheck and having to choose between feeding their kid and paying their bill oh my goodness and that should never be a dilemma right i mean exactly. the fact that that is a dilemma is kind of a a uh, well, in the spirit of hopefulness <laughs> and positive thinking, do you have um, any stories from any other cities, actually? Just because um, on the podcast, I've invited a few different pe people working with Bristol and me being based in Bristol. There's a lot of great examples coming about Bristol. Um, but I know that you um, you are working with a selection of different cities, whether in the UK or internationally. Um are there any unique solutions and situations that other cities have faced and then any success stories? <laughs> yeah, well, as I said, you know, working in such a variety of cities, there are so many different ways and solutions that work in different cities. So a lot of the hot topic at the moment is um, around nature-based solutions. And this mm. is where we are starting to see cities a lot more considering how, rather than going down a super technical avenue of, you know, thinking about what high-tech solutions we can use to help reduce our emissions, rather going down the nature-based solutions way. Um, so some Canadian cities even, you know, trying to map out how much, um, how close it is that each individual person is living from the nearest green space and using that as a metric to define everything around quality of life, but also because, um, planting trees and having green space does a number of different, it's another one of those things like energy efficiency where it tackles a number of different issues. So it mm. it improves quality of life in terms of um, people having outdoor space to access and, and closeness with nature. It reduces the overall temperature of the, um, the ground surface temperature because trees provide shaded areas. Um, trees themselves are obviously, you know, they, they eat up carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. um, and so it has this, these kind of tenfold uh, positive benefit benefits. So I think a lot of the cities, what some of the interesting methods that they're using is around mapping out how um, much green space that they have and how accessible that green space is for their people um, and really using those kind of nature-based solutions rather than something that's hugely technical to, um, to address the climate issue. I love it when um, the, some of the greatest innovations are the least techie, <laughs> things that are so sensible, so traditional, such as yeah. planting more trees on your yeah. sidewalks or in your parks. <laughs> so simple, so sensible, and, and, and at the end of the day, very doable, which is why, which is amazing, especially because I think um, something like planting more trees and having more green space or taking more advantage of the existing green space you have and instead of just having fields of grass you know uh, having more canopy and uh, more shade things like that is also doable for less rich cities as well which you know when we're talking about uh, incredibly um, uh, high-tech solutions or sustainable buildings or LEED certified buildings they can be very costly but what you just said there is just doable for you know probably most towns and most cities so again i i love it when that happens <laughs> agreed 
Yeah, and I've also seen really, I uh, back in Vancouver and in some of my travels, I loved um, seeing stuff like living walls or there's also moss face graffiti. Have you ever seen this? No, I've never heard of that. What is it? So basically, uh, when you're painting, you grind up moss. So, you know, because moss quite is proliferates itself quite easily. And so you create this kind of water soluble paint and then you paint with it. And then very quickly, moss grows in kind of the directions or the brush strokes that you um, took. And so it ends up being moss graffiti. Wow, amazing. <laughs> yeah, things like that. And, and you're creating um, green space on, on probably blank walls. Um, and I just thought, it, first of all, it's beautiful, <laughs> but it's also incredibly green. And it just makes a lot of sense. And it's not high tech at all. All you've done is just taken paint, um, you know, non-toxic paint and then ground up moss in it. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, things like that. Yeah. Um, and I also know you said that you uh, grew up in Kuwait and you've seen through two Gulf walls. And have, do you have any stories um, from uh, cities in that area? Any any kind of comparisons or contrast between uh, Middle East and Bristol yeah. or Canada or anywhere? I would say the Middle East is definitely going down the more technical route, um, <laughs> probably because they have quite a bit of money uh, as, <laughs> yeah. as a general rule of thumb. And they definitely are those innovation hubs and tend to, you know, really be interested in kind of what's the next big thing. So a lot of the the cities that we're seeing in the Middle East are really focused on kind of large scale things like renewables. Obviously, there's a lot of solar potential in the Middle East um, due to the mm-hmm. kind of high temperatures. And um, yeah, they're really focused on a lot of kind of forward-looking technologies and what can we be doing better and what, what can we be doing next. They definitely... Um, I wouldn't say they're they're as ambitious. They don't they struggle to sort of set targets and I think the political scenario there is um quite different from other uh, regions in that the kind of subnational governments don't have as much powers and they also don't necessarily, or at least for what I'm seeing, don't have as much um, kind of political um, focus on environmental and social um, issues, especially around climate change. So I, I from, from what I've seen, it tends to be more of a focus um, um, in those regions about, uh, you know, social and economic um, improvements and not a lot of governmental level um, kind of political um, statements being made around climate change and, you know, it really being a current um, focus for them. So I think is there's kind of two ways around about it and one is a b- bottom-up approach and one of the top-down approach. So in, you know, in a top-down approach where the, the kind of mayor would make a big statement and come out to all the press and say, you know, climate change is a huge issue that we need to deal with currently. And um, here, you know, let's go ahead and try and make some policies and put some uh, provisions in place to tackle that. And on the other hand, the kind of bottom up approach is where the the people really are taking to the streets and, you know, creating a huge fuss about it. Like I, I you know, I mentioned in Bath and, and a lot of cities in the UK right now, it's happening and probably all over the world as well. Um, and that results in um, political parties saying, well, this seems to be the hot topic that everyone's talking about. We better, you know, um, think of some policies so that we can get voted into office. Um you know, and, and it's funny because that, that kind of connection between 
the uh, the government and people because in uh, for example in China they um, they're able to make quite huge and drastic changes in terms of um, you know some of the Chinese cities have actually done really huge large scale um, renewables projects they've mm-hmm. really been able to change and 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 they're they're kind of some of the world leading cities in terms of being able to implement large scale projects very quickly but also on the other hand because the governments are m- more structured and not, not they're not voted in so <laughs> with the communist government you have the ability to just say well i'm going to do this i don't care if you like it or not there you go yep. but um yeah, unfortunately, in other countries, they have to, you know, they have to make sure that that whatever policies they're putting in place are going to get them voted back into office next time. So, so it's it's really quite a big disparity between those those different types of cities. And regionally, you do see um, different focuses happening. Like in South America, for example, a lot of the focus is on water. Um, mm. A lot of the cities are really struggling, and uh, in terms of uh, water security and being able to have access to clean water and continued access. So there's some innovative projects that are happening there um, that they're working with universities, for example. There was a project in um, in uh, Belize where they were uh, using billboards um, to collect rainwater um, mm. and 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 having like an existing structure that already existed there and kind of manipulating and adding some um, very simple uh, additional uh, kind of collection features to use the the structure of the billboard and the fact that they were dotted around all, all areas of the city and use them as a as a, a way to collect rainwater and use um, and and have and added taps to the back of them so that people could you know could access them so um, some kind of innovative ways of uh, of water resource management um, being seen in in, in those areas uh, due to the kind of uh, really high high temperatures and lack of water and lack of access it does eventually lead to innovation because people are struggling and they don't know where to go or what to do and that seems to be kind of like a general trend I think there is sometimes a misconception in Europe and North America and some of the developing developed world uh, public opinion that develop developing countries are, you know, are creating the pollution. You know, they don't care about sustainability, but actually those are the people who are probably often struggling the most with immediate um, changes to their environment. They're the ones struggling. And when there is that kind of clear need, whether it be, you know, in Mongolia where air quality and, they're just really uh, dealing with public health issues because of um, air pollution or in places like Pacific Islands where they genuinely see themselves like losing arable soil because uh, the sea level rising. You know, actually, they uh, in especially in places uh, where, you know, the policies and the government is decided somewhat by popular vote, um, there is actually a very large mandate to um to think about climate impact. And I sometimes think that it's actually us who are privileged enough to be living in beautiful, you know, um, relatively unspoiled nature um, and in clean environments because just by virtue of our privilege, uh, that we're the ones who forget how urgent and how immediate this climate emergency is. And yeah, sometimes I think we kind of delude ourselves into thinking, oh, they're the ones creating the pollution. They don't care about it. But actually, these these people are incredibly innovative and they're also often incredibly aware because they're seeing the impact in their lives already. Very true. 
yeah anyway I'll get off my soapbox (laughs) (laughs) but yeah for example when I was living in China um, and air quality was a daily topic I mean the British talk about the weather all the time but in China everybody wakes up and talks about air oh how is the air today Um, and so for the year that I was living in Shenzhen which is one of the cleanest actually major cities um, in terms of air in China um, I saw air pollution and soil pollution and just water pollution uh, genuinely impact people's lives on a very real way because it was actually visible I could wake up and see how bad the air was that day (laughs) you didn't need ratings or indices (laughs) because yeah you could wake up and look down the um you know because they obviously have these giant roads you know very communist or socialist kind of architecture they have these giant roads uh lined with trees and I could depending on how many trees I could see into the horizon I could tell how bad the spot, how bad the smog was that day. I didn't need an NSE index because wow. I could just count the trees. <laughs> and That's so, amazing. yeah, and it's places like that where you don't need to talk about public awareness, <laughs> right? Um, it's actually us in the UK where we do need to have these kinds of demonstrations and let's talk about public awareness. We actually care. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes it's it's easy to be thinking that this beautiful um, nature that we see in Somerset in the UK or in British Columbia back in Canada, that that is a wor- how the world is when, in fact, no, climate change is already impacting people. Sorry. I, it's I interesting. You- no, it's interesting that you said <laughs> that. I was about that uh, in terms of that um, health topic as well. I was mm. um, discussing this with a colleague about how um, a lot in a lot of places, the climate agenda has sort of rapidly been climbing up the ladder, especially when the terminology around health and urban health and people's health comes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and some politicians who previously were not, um, you know, it, it, the, the lang- it really depends on the language that you use. I think some politicians who were previously not, you know, really interested or cared much about environmental issues. Um, now, when you take it from the urban health angle and you say, look at how many people are actually dying from pollution, mm-hmm. they suddenly just want to do something about it because people dying does not look good to them you know it doesn't make doesn't look great when you're um you're the people living in a city are constantly dying so so it's it's actually an interesting way because sometimes it's just in the framing and that's how you end up catching the people who who need who are making the decisions and you we should as environmental um people who work in the environmental field should always be aware especially when it comes to politicians, that we might not be using the correct language for them. We live in this kind of bubble where we all know that climate change is a huge issue and we all know that something needs to be done. We know that urgent action needs to happen now. We know that um, energy relates to emissions because that's Mm -hmm. where it's all coming from. We know that coal is bad and renewables is good. But sometimes it just takes using a slightly different language and whether it's talking about the economic benefit or social inclusion or health or, you know, uh, a, a reduction in kind of the amount of money that's being spent on on health um, services and emergency services and maybe and using the language that they speak um, can often lead to us being heard better than saying, you know, nature is dying or the summer is getting hotter. <laughs> they don't really care about that. <laughs> and I think that leads us very nicely into my next question, which is, where do you want to go next and how, what 
uh, we learned a little bit. Um, we talked a little bit about what kind of message you want to um, send out. But who do you want to speak to next? And what should people be doing differently? And how how do you want to spread this message further? It's a big question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think um, to talk to the to the local governments and the the people that I'm working with at the moment. If I ever had a, a chance to kind of you know, speak a bit from my heart to them, then I, I think I would say that we really need to be taking drastic action right now. And that's what I'm most um, excited and hopeful for. So, you know, this isn't a time for us to go around and say that we should, um, you know, try and recycle a little bit more or maybe try using the bus every now and then or let's put in place a policy where, um, you know, we're incentivizing a little bit people to take public transport. It isn't the time for small, minute changes. It's the time for drastic changes. And it's the time to think about what we should not be doing. Because politicians are very keen to show that they are coming up with a new project, putting in place a bit of funding to, to help activate some, some work in a local area, but they're very reluctant to say what they would stop doing. Mm-hmm. So things, for example, like a clear, clean air zone where the center of the city would just refuse access to any high-polluting vehicles and turn them away completely. That's like saying no completely. So I, I ca- I'm looking forward to times when um, local governments will use their power to just say no. So for example, like the airport expansion, just say no. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the same time as having to take action and do a lot of uh, change and, and, and Im- implement new programs and policies, we also have to stop doing these very uh, dangerous and deathly um activities that we're currently seeing as the normal and the norm, we need to stop some of those activities in order for us to kind of reach our targets. So I'm my call to action or, or, or however you want to call it is to really um, be taking a lot more drastic action. So the time is not now for um, making small baby steps, but it's for taking huge leaps. Oh, man, that is a big call to action. And I mean, even as somebody who, like you said, kind of works in the sustainability sector and is obviously a sustainability advocate. It's also, um, it's easy to do additional things. It's that additionality is easy, but exactly things, stopping doing things that are already established, things that are part of my routine, yep. um, the daily luxuries that I enjoy, um, the, I don't know, European vacation that I, that I want to um, take. And that kind of sacrifice is just really, really hard to make, isn't it? Um, asking people to stop something is really difficult. I mean, I, I, I try to replace um, international trips for the past year. Um, and so I am doing two summer vacations uh, within the UK by train. Um, nice. And yeah, and, but I have so many temptations. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> I'm like, I really don't want to fly. Um, and I'm trying to fly. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm trying not to fly as much as I can, but I really, it, it's really hard um, to let go of existing luxuries and existing um, routines. And yeah, have you had any success with that? <laughs> um, Whether personally or asking local authorities to um, stop doing something? Uh, personally, probably more so than <laughs> asking local authorities. That is a much more difficult task. Um, but yeah, I think personally, I've definitely made a, a, quite a few switches. And I think 
part of it is not really just the end result. I'm also it's also quite interesting to me how um how I'm actually quite resilient and I can actually do things that I think are going to be crazy, like just switching what types of um you know, toiletries and things you have in the house. And, and mm. you just realize oh, I didn't really need any of that stuff. I actually can survive whatever I just used to buy because I used to buy it all the time because it was just what I bought. It mm. wasn't necessarily something that I needed to have. And there is a lot more other options. And I think where where you get success stories is where you provide a viable alternative. And I think mm. going back to kind of the local government aspect is it's true that, you know, they need to be saying no to more things, but they also need to give people viable options. So, for example, um, if your public transport infrastructure is awful and, you know, it's I don't want to talk again about Bristol, but that is a, is a good case study. <laughs> yes. If your public transport system is just horrendous, then uh, and it's expensive to take public transport and it takes much longer to do that and it's it's not reliable. Nobody's going to do it everybody's going to take their own car. And that's the scenario that we currently have. Whereas if you say, well, we're stopping you from having access to cars, but look at the shiny new system that we made for you. It'll get you from A to B and it's cheaper than what you would do. You know, it's cheaper than what you were doing before. And it has all these additional benefits. You need to make it easier or give some other benefit. Otherwise, no one's going to go out of their way and change drastically their day-to-day behaviors because that's just inherently how we are as humans. We're just built yeah. to take the easiest path um, and, and changing that path to something we have never done before is only feasible and realistic when there's a good reason to do it, an incentive. So I would say that's definitely much more of a struggle, but I, I would like to hope that eventually we can come to a place where um, those paths are much easier and they are the only logical choice and mm. therefore everybody does them and therefore we have a green city. <laughs> yeah, that's the dream. And what can the listener, what can the average listener sitting at home uh, or maybe they, they're driving their car, fingers crossed that's not the case, <laughs> but maybe they're going to work and listening to this podcast. What can? What is one thing that they can do to get involved with your mission as either a consumer or a citizen? So I'll say two things because you said two interesting points. And one mm-hmm. is the fact that they're consumers and one is the fact that they're citizens. So as a consumer, I think the biggest thing you can do is do not underestimate the power of the pound in your pocket. I, I listened to some TEDx talk and it was, it was someone who was who was talking about how much power we actually have as consumers in our pocket. Just that one pound that you're spending, you've made a decision and you're showing companies that this is what you agree with or stand for and that the other competitive business is what you disagree with. So don't forget how powerful the, the pound in your pocket is. And then on the citizen side, I would say, you know, write to your mayors, tell them that this is an important issue. They do listen. If they have hundreds of people calling them up and, and, and you know, turning up at their doors, they will actually listen. Like it's surprised, it surprised me how much through my work currently I, I spoke to mayors and they actually go out and they want to talk to the citizens in their city. I don't think people realize how accessible their mayor is. Just another person, mm-hmm. really. You know, they, they're not sitting in some high office behind a gold chair and just, you know, writing policy off of nothing so go and talk to them and, and try and get in touch with them and let them let them know that this is something that their citizens really care about 
I mean, and just on the second note, I used to volunteer for Amnesty International, and this is obviously a very different issue. Um, but yeah, just writing letters, it was really surprising to see just a number of things like number of signatures. And so adding your name to a certain kind of list or petition for an action you believe in or writing layers, letters to um, political figures. Yeah, it actually changed a lot. And I didn't have to sacrifice much, <laughs> which yeah. is the best part about it, right? Yep. Um, that's amazing. And I really hope our listeners kind of get involved and um, see what there is what there is um, available that they can be involved in and just become a little bit more aware of their daily actions and their daily purposes. That would be amazing. And um, where would you, if the listeners also wanted to follow up with you and the work that you're doing, uh, where should they go? Sure. So you can get me on Twitter. I'm Sarah, S-A-R-A, Telehoun, T-E-L-A-H-O-U-N on Twitter. Then you can also add me on LinkedIn if you like, Sarah Telehoun. Um, and my organization is called Amthesis, so you can definitely keep in touch with us and see what interesting work we do as well. Amazing. I will put um, all of those links in the show notes, including a link to Amthesis's website. And I have one final question, which I kept the secret from you, which is, uh, given the title of our podcast, do you think of yourself as a true hero? I was thinking about this actually today, so it's it's quite interesting that you asked me that. I was actually thinking, not really, but it's I guess it's it's I guess it's um it's all relative, right? What you consider to be a hero, and I I always would think of um, a hero as somebody whose work is simultaneously doing good, but is also rather difficult to do. I think I have a very privileged position in that my work pays me enough that I can survive and go about my daily life and have luxuries. Um, and I don't have to work obscene hours. Um, so I, I'd like to think that in my personal uh, mind that a hero is someone whose work not only does the good that I hopefully am eventually doing, but in addition, um, it, it's, it's the work itself is fairly difficult and whether and whether that is in terms of the impact on their life or them not necessarily being rewarded for it so I hope all of those um, heroes out there are also feeling like you know the work that they're doing is is also being heard and that's everybody from people like social workers or nurses doing night shifts and everyone like that um, everyone's a hero amazing thank you so much for coming on to the podcast it is such a pleasure and also an inspiration to talk to you. So I'm going to um, wrap it up now. And thank you, thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks. Yeah. I'll catch up with you next time. Cheers. That interview with Sarah was a blast. If you are so inspired, you can check out Sarah's current workplace at www.anthesisgroup.com. And Anthesis is spelled A N T H E sisgroup.com. I'll also leave that in the show notes. And if you want to reach out to Sarah directly, you can try her LinkedIn again in the show notes or follow her on Twitter at Sarah Telehood. That's nice and easy to remember. And please, please, please subscribe to True Heroes wherever you're getting this podcast right now. And share the podcast link on your social media and tell all your friends. Word of mouth is the number one way people find out about podcasts. 
And this podcast is brought to you ad-free by yours truly. And one way to support the show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever platform allows you to leave a review. Every review will boost True Heroes up the charts and help new listeners find the show. And of course, this podcast is a brainchild of OCO, the company whose mission is to generate hope, opportunity, and capacity for everyone in every city. Thanks for lending an ear to True Heroes. Talk to you next week.